Hello and welcome to Unfiltered, our newest program in our weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Joining us is Dr. Jonathan Fisher, a cardiologist and esteemed leader in helping healthcare professionals to prevent and address burnout. For 25 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation. As nationally recognized physicians and healthcare policy experts, they'll apply the lessons they extract to medical practice. I'll then pose a question for the two of them based on what I've heard. Robbie, why don't you kick it off? Good morning, Jonathan, and welcome back to Unfiltered. Hi, Robbie. It's always great to be here and to speak with you. I've attended several superb conferences on physician burnout that you've organized. And the topic, of course, is incredibly important and a growing threat to the health of doctors, nurses, and patients. But simultaneously for patients, the the financial pain that they are experiencing feels to them even more problematic than the discomfort of clinicians. A potential solution to both is through added productivity in healthcare. Do you see a role for doctors and nurses to find ways to provide excellence in medical care at lower costs, or is that someone else's responsibility? I love that question, Robbie, and it acknowledges that the answer depends on who's asking it. And I think if we're going to come from the perspective of a true leader in healthcare, we have to encompass and acknowledge all the voices in the room including patients, their perspective, providers, physicians, nurses, but also healthcare insurers and pharmaceutical companies as well. Um, The question really triggers physicians, right? And it's because of the way we define productivity, Robbie. Uh, The traditional definition, if you look at all the productivity experts, is doing more. And I think what you're asking is something different. It's not just being more productive because From a burnout perspective, a physician who hears a conversation starting with the word, how can you be more productive, will slam the phone and shut the door and not want to hear any more. But if we ask the question, not how can you do more with less, but how can you be part of the solution and help the other stakeholders, meaning the insurers and the policymakers, how can you help them make better decisions? so that we all can get what we want, which is better care for our patients. I don't think that there are different answers. I think there's one answer, which is reducing waste in our system, which drives burnout and it also drives patient costs and aligning incentives. I think the root of your question, Robbie, is, you know, our healthcare systems are in trouble financially, many of them, uh, and the solution is often to push the workers to do more. And that is a very short-sighted solution. Um, If we look at how healthcare is paid for, we have to look at the insurance companies. And I think there's a disconnect here where insurance companies want the providers to do less testing uh, and the hospital systems often want the providers, whether they'll say it or not, to do more testing and be more productive. So I'm gonna pause there and say, we have to define clearly what we mean by productivity. And I think the focus should not be on productivity for its own sake. I think the focus has to be on how do we provide access to the patients who need the care, because that's in short supply right now. How do we continue to reward physicians who are doing excellent care and working their hearts out without them feeling like they're simply workers on the Laverne and Shirley 
chocolate factory line uh, just struggling to keep up. Let's dive a little bit deeper into this question. You mentioned the insurers. At least theoretically, what an insurer is, is an intermediary between someone who actually pays the bill, whether that's an individual, a business, or the government. And of course, there's a profit motive that sits there. So I'll go back to the same question. Is it the insurance company that's responsible for making care affordable for the people who pay? Is the price just something we should be embracing no matter how high it gets? Or is there a direct accountability for the people who write the prescriptions, recommend the procedures, and order the tests? The answer to your question is yes. <laughs> and what I mean by that is um, I think the only way forward is if we bring the, the, the thinkers, the best thinkers from the insurance company, healthcare leadership, and physicians themselves to the same table. And three of us sit around a table. Physicians know the value of care. Uh, I would say that patients know it the best because they can feel it. Physicians are the next best to know the value of care. I think insurance companies, they have actuaries, they can do the computations about the different uh, tests and which one is going to actually provide long-term um, value. Uh, I do think it's a shared responsibility, Robbie. And to answer your question, at the same time that physicians are often checking out and saying, don't ask me to do more things and to shoulder more responsibility and risk, at that same time, we have to pull up our bootstraps and take ownership for advocating for our patients. And, for, and that may mean fighting with an insurance company and saying, we need to do better here. Uh, it may mean uh, advocating with our politicians saying, we need a little more regulation in drug costs because my patients can't afford the drugs that they need to help them. I think it comes down to a conversation, Robbie, between the people who are making decisions and you've identified those people pretty well. Let me push a little harder and we'll start with nursing rather than physicians, but I will come back to physicians afterwards because uh, that's an area that you are a national leader around. But let's assume that there is opportunities in nursing to find a way to use fewer RNs. How might you do it with other people? who could do many of the jobs that are being done today by nurses safely, but whose salary is lower because they have less education. Or maybe it's being done through technology. So let's imagine that it would lead to less demand for nurses, lower costs, but equivalent care. Is that something you could envision? nurses and nurses unions pushing to see happen or would you see them simply resisting on the notion that it's not as safe as what theoretically could be if we had sufficient number of rns uh, being paid and trained in the united states today 
I love the way you pose that question, Robbie, because you at the end, you acknowledged resistance, uh, which I think is important when we're trying to find creative collaborative solutions is to before walking into the room with a group of nurse leaders, acknowledging that nurses have a sense of pride that they are the ones who quote know best what's right for the patient. And uh, I think there is a resistance, just like we've spoken about before on the physician side of yielding some of our ownership of patient care. And we tend to have pride in that, yielding some of that, whether it's to artificial intelligence, to medical scribes, to uh, uh, APPs, et cetera. I think it's a parallel conversation on the nursing side that you're bringing up. Um, and you highlighted the solution. The, the rising complexity of delivering medical care requires, requires, I don't think it's an option, Robbie, that our nurses can continue to do all the tasks that they're doing. Uh, wisdom, wisdom determines that uh, menial tasks that are currently done by nurses have to be done by people who haven't gone through nursing school. But at the same time, it's going to require a new type of training for nurses because it'll, it'll add an additional skill. It's no longer just the care of the patient at the bedside. It's now also the supervision and the knowledge of how to delegate responsibility while maintaining ownership of the patient care. What are your thoughts on that, Robbie? I think that if the clinicians don't lead the way to lowering the cost of healthcare, we're going to regret it. And we're going to regret it because someone else will come up with a solution that will compromise patient care. I'm confident that if clinicians lead the way, we're not going to let something bad happen to patients. But if we don't, hmm. we're going to see the cost rise so fast hmm. that possibly be restrictions around care or added prior authorization, or maybe it'll just simply be devolving further into a two-tier system. It's yeah. why I'm pushing so hard on this question, because I don't see us leading that way. Yeah. Robbie, can I can I ask a follow-up question here? And that Please. is, I want to make it a real-world scenario here. I appreciate what you're saying, that physicians have to take ownership here. As you know, more than 50% of physicians right now feel like they have their backs on against the wall. They are, many of them, one in five, are deciding how they can not lean into decisions about improving our healthcare system, but actually retire and leave the system. So who exactly are these physicians? Which are the ones, and I know they're there, but in your mind, which are the physicians that are going to help advocate for patients, uh, help shift policy, work for lower costs and more access to care when more than half of physicians currently don't have the mental or emotional bandwidth to even listen to the question. Well, what you're describing is the activation energy problem, which is that people don't have the energy to do the things that would give them the energy. And what I mean by that is that, and I'm going to be generous to insurers and make no uh, question about it. I'm not a big supporter of the insurance companies. I think there's so much more they should be doing, could be doing, and that the bottom line profits are usually the motivating factor. We could spend an entire program on that. But let me say that they have a problem and that they have to find, as you said, a way to make costs affordable for whoever's going to pay. It could be the patient, it could be the business, it could be the government. But when it's not affordable, they have no alternative 
than to figure out a way to make it affordable. And the tools they have are so blunt. Prior authorization is a great example. It's really a delay in care. People will give up. It's not the right way to think about how to provide medical care. But I would argue that the opposite side, which in medicine, the culture believes that it's not the doctor's job to worry about the economics is equally wrong. And that many of the things that lead to the burnout, the frustrations of not being able to provide the care, the moral injury, I think come from the fact that there is a zero sum opportunity out there as we see it currently. And that if clinicians could lead the way lowering the cost, mm. that that would be a solution both to the payer problem and to the patient problem that sits there. I mean, as yeah. an example, you know, we know that there is a many things that are being done that don't add great value in the cardiology literature, the way that we take care of patients with very stable angina mm. and the variation, as you know, that exists amongst the different approaches. Examples in terms of how we evaluate patients with headache. Now, don't make me, don't misunderstand. We need to do it to the best of science, but why can't we agree on what that starts to look like mm. and where there's excesses ourselves make that change happen? It's a science medicine. Mm. I mean, yes, it's an art, but the knowledge should be a science. And we have yet to embrace that in a way that leads to elimination of interventions that do little for patients. Now, mm -hmm. I know this is very controversial and people are not going to be happy with some of the things I just said, but why can't we make sure yeah. that we practice evidence-based medicine, which, as mm -hmm. you know, is not what doctors do today? And if that leads to lower costs, now we have the resources to make the investments, both in prevention for the patient side and to be able to address some of the burnout issues that, mm -hmm. as you say, are killing doctors today. I, I love the points you're making. I hear you loud and clear, and I have a couple of counterpoints. Uh, the first one is I received as a physician zero training in costs of care during what I thought was an excellent medical education at a very esteemed institution. So that's the first thing. Um, getting the, the question I pose to you is how are physicians who don't have the current mental and emotional bandwidth number one, to, are going to address this question. But number two, those same physicians, many of us, we simply don't have the training in some of the financial questions around cost of care. So I'm going to suggest that this has to begin in medical school. And I know that you teach uh, business school and you teach business to medical students. That's not the norm in today's healthcare culture. Uh, most medical schools, I don't think, have a dedicated course on how to train physicians to do exactly what you're asking them to do. And I do think it's unfair, Robbie, to take a physician who's mid-career, who doesn't have this background. And here's the second point. As you know, one of the key drivers of burnout in healthcare among not just doctors and nurses is this phenomenon of moral injury. Moral injury, which comes out of the military literature, says that you know what the right thing to do is, but you have no power or authority to do anything about it. And so my pushback is to say 
that if we put this burden, and I think it's necessary, but if we put it on mid or late career physicians who don't have the authority to make decisions about costs and what they can do is maybe advocate, maybe send a letter here and there, but are so occupied with prior authorizations, that will increase the moral injury further driving burnout. So I think the solution has to happen further upstream. You're absolutely right, Jonathan. It can't happen at the individual doctor level. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I believe that as doctors, we need to recognize that the days of solo physicians or even single specialties practicing alone can't manage the complexity of disease that we face today. I think we should be leading the transformation effort coming together to create multi-specialty, multi-clinician type groups, being able to accept capitation. And within a capitated system, there's no need for prior authorization. It's all inside the healthcare profession. And I actually believe that doctors will have less burnout because they'll have more control. The idea of prior authorization to an insurance company doesn't exist, but discussing it with colleagues about the right way to provide the care, that is a tremendous opportunity. You know, I read recently a report from the government. The actuaries calculated that between now and 2031, mm. the cost of healthcare in the United States was going to go from the current level of 4.2, 4.3 trillion dollars mm. to over seven trillion dollars. That's a near doubling of cost. That's three more trillion dollars mm. without any promise of better medical care. Mm. There's something intrinsically broken about that. And what I can see, because I'm a strategist, as you say, I teach in the business school strategy. I look to the future. What is going to happen when our country has to increase the cost of medical care over a seven to eight year time period by 75%? I can't see any way that whether the purchasers or the government or the purchasers or businesses or individuals that our nation can do it. And more than that, Jonathan, hmm. I think we could spend those dollars far better, whether it's in chronic disease management, prevention, even education. We have so many ways that we could do it. And I have not heard anyone saying that at the end of that seven or eight year time period, that patients will be getting better care or that burnout will diminish, or any of the problems of today are going to go away. And somehow you're absolutely right. There's this inertia that exists, and I understand it because of the pressure that doctors are feeling and nurses are feeling. I just think we're approaching this in the wrong way, and we should be the ones leading the solutions. How to get the energy? I think that this is a time that people do step up and there are leaders out there. Will it take some experience to get better, some education to become uh, more skilled at being able to lead this process? Absolutely. But I actually have faith that if physicians had that responsibility, accepted that capitation, they would find the ways to deliver care. And that right now, what's happening is that the system is so broken and the FIFA service is just a treadmill that rats run faster and faster on. And that that is what's happening. Doctors are being made to be rats 
rather than being the professionals that they are and the same for nurses. Mm. Robbie, it's so eloquent. And I have a question and this, this just comes from a, really um, a place where I've had conversations with other leaders. The idea of accepting capitation and the idea of cutting down these spiraling costs is going to require an incentive to keep the cost low. And we touched on before that there may be differing incentives depending on who you are in the healthcare uh, ecosystem. Does your solution require that insurance companies and healthcare systems merge into one umbrella in order to align those incentives, or are you speaking about something different? I think the more integration you have, the more likely you are to come up with the most effective and efficient solutions. But it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, Medicare Advantage is a good example of a capitated program in which groups of physicians can accept the accountability and take the risk. Make no doubt about it, Jonathan. There is risk involved in a capitated program and be able to be financially successful. So far, there have not been very many organizations able and willing to do it. But when you look at some programs, let's look at primary care. You look at Chen Med, a group of primary care physicians who focus on the sickest of individuals in the country, the double the dual eligibles, Medicare and Medicaid, and are doing a remarkable job at being able to achieve great outcomes by focusing on the inefficiencies that don't add to medical uh, clinical outcomes and frustrate patients. I mean, they're seeing patients on a monthly basis. These are very sick individuals, not healthy uh, people. But that opportunity exists when it comes under the control of physicians, but it requires this leap forward, Jonathan. That's what I'm mm -hmm. saying. And right mm -hmm. now, as physicians, as nurses, as healthcare professionals, we're playing defense. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to do more about it. And as I said, the idea that somehow people are going to give the healthcare profession the dollars that they would like, I don't think it's going to happen. And so as a strategist, when I look forward and I see something that can't happen, it says to me, the time has come to shift direction. And mm. that's where I see this movement. And it's more than capitation. Capitation doesn't work unless you have integration. You need to have a large number of individuals so you can start to put in place efficiencies that otherwise wouldn't be possible. What mm. is primary care have to send patients to you as a cardiologist for some problems because you need to do a physical exam, because you need to do mm. an ultrasound, because you need to do some study. But how often could you solve that problem if you could do it virtually with the patient when they were still in the primary care physician's office and get it resolved faster at lower cost? Now, you're the expert in cardiology, so you have to determine which of the problems are most amenable to that. But the experience that we had in Kaiser Permanente was that about 40% of the referrals could be managed with better outcomes, not lower outcomes at far lower costs. Hmm. Beautiful, beautiful uh, explanation there, Robbie. What I, what I see from this is we need to have within each institution um, a holistic group of leaders focused on eliminating waste and reducing cost. 
And on that team, there are physicians who are doing the care. And I think most uh, institutions have something like that, but we're not seeing it as, as robust as we can. Uh, physicians need to feel empowered that we can uh, protect our patients by keeping costs down and waste down. Um, I wonder what the country would look like if every institution had an elevated committee uh, just dedicated to eliminating waste, uh, which would in turn reduce burnout and improve patient care and outcomes. And I also think you've alluded to this, we, physicians have to be the ones to help determine outcomes and what a valuable outcome is. Otherwise, we will default to trying to make more profits uh, to pay the bills <laughs> uh, and to pay off debt, as opposed to keeping our eyes on the ultimate goal, which is patient outcome, safety, and experience. I worry when it's done by committees and by institutions, because I think in the end, they become very self-protective. Hospitals could reduce inpatient utilization dramatically. We know that we have examples of that, but financially it would be devastating to many of them if all of a sudden, let's say a quarter or a third of the patients for whom they're receiving revenue was being taken care, were being taken care of at home or actually had investments made in prevention. So they didn't have the heart attack or the stroke mm. or the cancer in the first place. A few years ago, I was a guest professor up at uh, the Oregon Health Sciences Institute. And before my talk, I was walking around the hallways, looking at all the signs that are on the bulletin boards. And I saw this sign that I still remember to this day. It said across the top, quality, access, and cost, big letters. And in the bottom, it said, pick any two. <laughs> You know, that was the mindset of the 20th century. That was the best we could do because we didn't have the knowledge of today. We didn't have the tools of today. We didn't have the medication. I don't believe that anymore. I actually think the way you lower costs is you raise quality. You eliminate disease. You better manage chronic disease. You avoid the complications of diabetes and the diet complications of hypertension. You know, across the nation, we control hypertension 60% of the time. In Kaiser Permanente, we were at 90%. Colon cancer screening, and I don't mean colonoscopy. I mean fit testing, which has been shown if it's done every year to be equally effective. Now, the GI docs listening won't agree with that, but that's what the data says. We can lower the incidence by 20 or 30%. And as you know, these days, if you develop metastatic colon cancer, that's a quarter of a million dollar cost to say nothing about the impact on the fact that you're going to likely die and the impact on your family. I mean, there's mm. just so many things that we could be doing better than we do today. And Jonathan, I'm raising mm. this whole issue because I don't think that we're not paying the attention that's needed to some of the opportunities that exist today because of the underlying economic system in the country. And mm. I think that is driving the burnout. It's not how we as clinicians see it because we get the moral injury from the insurer. But if you look upstream, what's the insurer going to do? They could just raise the rates even further. But what about the businesses and the family business and the individuals? When you start going through all the pieces, I don't see a, a good solution 
Mm. It doesn't involve lowering costs through greater efficiency. We don't like the word productivity. That's okay. But every word that I've had heard people come up with, no mm. one likes the idea that we have waste. They don't think they waste anything. No one likes the idea that we have mm. inefficiency. They think they're very efficient. So I don't have a good word for it, mm. but I know that we could do it so much better. Yeah. Robbie, you you mentioned uh, how capitation will, and I agree with this, will potentially eliminate this perverse incentive that drives us to do more and to do more testing, which I think of the near doubling of the $3.7 trillion expense. A lot of that has to do with testing. Some of it has to do with uh, pharmaceutical prices. I think some small percentage has to do with salaries, less than the other two. What happens with pharmaceutical prices in, in this solution? Capitation... I don't think is going to solve that, is it? You can think of pharmaceutical pricing in two ways. One way to think about it is at the drug company level. And I believe that that should be far more regulated than today. That's the obligation of Congress. We have a broken political system, even more so than the medical system. We have lobbying. We have financial contributions. Mm. I'm very pessimistic. We're going to see that in the very near future, despite the recent legislation that was passed. Mm. But we do have alternatives, and as physicians, we don't necessarily do them. The data says that every genetic, not just the data, legally, every genetic has to be chemically identical, proven identical to a brand name drug. Mm. It should be equally efficacious. We don't do that and use it as often as it is available because we don't see that as part of the job that we have. Biosimilars, as you know, are large molecular proteins. They can't be chemically identical, but they can be equally efficacious. I had the chance to see a insulin producing company in another country Everything I could see, it was identical to what happens in the United States. The outcome was shown in other countries of the world to be equally efficacious. That's an example of where we could start driving down the costs. And this week I made a very radical proposal about the weight loss drugs. And I wanna ask you about those later on if we have time. Mm -hmm. We have an obesity epidemic. These new drugs have been shown to be very effective. They cost, on the other hand, between twelve dollars and $15,000 a year. When you play the math out, if you gave that to everyone who was obese in the United States, it would increase healthcare costs by over 25%. That's just, again, unaffordable to do. Why couldn't the government, as they did in Operation Warp Speed, fund a research effort and create a drug, this whole class of drugs, there are so many of them available, the uh, various uh, GI type proteins, the GLP-1s and other medications in the same category. Why couldn't the government fund an effort, invest, let's say $4 billion, which is double what it costs a typical company to bring a drug to marketplace, and then insist as part of the contract and receiving the money, as it did in Operation Warp Speed, that it would sell the product to the government 
which, by the way, insures close to half of the nation or accounts at least for half of the nation's costs at maybe $2,000 a year instead of 12 or 15. That would be a very vital role in the same way it brought vaccines forward to help us reverse obesity, the same way we took care of the coronavirus pandemic. Why couldn't we make that same type of investment and on behalf of the American public, make that medication available at an affordable price? I think there's so many more things that we can do, but I'm much more, I believe much greater in the likelihood that clinicians dedicated to patients will make the changes happen than elected officials receiving campaign con contributions in Congress. Mm. Yeah, you, you brought up this whole question about um, Ozempic uh, and other similar drugs and the cost of drugs being prohibitive. In an ideal world, uh, we would give medicine like this to everybody who needed it because of uh, cardiovascular risk or negative health outcomes, potentially saving costs. Um, there are there are some benefits to this. Um, we could have instant access to treatment. Um, we would encourage innovation in the pharmaceutical industry. We would encourage more competition, uh, according to your plan, uh, and potentially and, and driving down costs. Um, I do have just a few concerns. I didn't know if you wanted to go into that conversation now or come back to where we were, but if we were talking about offering a drug solution for obesity as sort of the holy grail, um, there are many potential problems with that. And, and if we will have this conversation, I think it has to be grounded in a holistic approach to the epidemic of obesity, which is, you mentioned before, the rising healthcare costs. No small part of that is the epidemic of obesity, where seven out of 10 Americans are either overweight or obese. And many of them have increased healthcare costs because of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, stroke, orthopedic issues, as you know. And so these two conversations, I see them as tied together. And I do think it brings us to how do we approach healthcare in a more preventative way? Particularly here, we're talking about this obesity epidemic. Giving a drug to everybody who's obese today uh, whether they whether they need it or not, that's another question. A lot of patients, as you know, and are asking for these drugs. In fact, demanding them from their physicians, and physicians are now being sanctioned uh, by the pharmaceutical companies and others uh, for giving drugs to people who don't necessarily need them. And so, I think we have a responsibility not just to put a finger in the dam that's about to flood us, this dam of obesity, uh, with simple not simple, but with approaches involving pharmaceuticals where we medicalize obesity. Rabbi, I really believe we have to broaden the conversation, talk about our culture in the West and how we approach health in general. Right now, we're waiting for the healthcare system to fix us when we're broken. That's why we're going bankrupt, in a nutshell, in my opinion. If we had an approach that began in childhood, that began in our communities, that leveled the playing field, that offered healthy foods, access to affordable foods in food deserts and elsewhere, early childhood education about how does it mean to eat healthy so that it's not just the privileged among us who have access to healthy foods and have access to gyms and have access to nature trails to walk on. We have a lot of inequity to deal with as well. I wanted to insert that into this conversation since so much of it is around cost. 
I wanted to insert this conversation around the responsibility is not just between doctors and healthcare leaders and insurers, the American and global public actually, I think we have a responsibility to talk about what does it mean to be healthy, to raise healthy children, and in the workplace, this is a whole nother conversation, how do we keep our workers healthy? Most people work, and workplaces are struggling to against rising rates of obesity, et cetera, and lost work hours. Um, so this may be a conversation for another day, but I wanted to bring that into the conversation. I concur completely with you, Jonathan. There is no greater proponent of lifestyle medicine than I am. I am a major believer in the power of uh, proper nutrition, of exercise, of the various opportunities that exist to make wellness part of our society. I think the foods that we have with processed sugar are bordering on being poisons and that we need to change that. I think we don't have, we have far insufficient bran in our diet. That's B-R-A-N, not with a D, that uh, allows uh, proper GI functions. I think there's so much we could do with uh, trainers and with coaches and other individuals. The challenge that I have, Jonathan, in healthcare, and this is really an evolution in my career, is that I used to talk a lot about what should be. And now I try to talk as much as I can about what will be. Uh, I mm. know things that would improve health. The mm. question is, will they get the type of political force necessary to make them a reality or manufacturers are gonna change? And all too often, 10 years after a great idea comes forward from someone, nothing is very different about it. And so mm. I, I keep trying to look for where the opportunities are. Now, listeners should make no uh, misassumption. I am not saying we should medicalize obesity and use only drugs. I think things go together. Opportunities that doctors would have. I mean, if you just take diabetes, you can treat it with insulin. You also can treat it with lifestyle medicine. People mm. can reverse type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular mm. disease. Actually, I've seen evidence about renal disease the opportunities exist to be able to make those changes, and we should do that when it will work. But we also should understand that sometimes you need medications in addition as part to it or as a passageway towards. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, as you know, I'm a runner. And if you ask me to run carrying a 50-pound backpack, <laughs> I don't know that I'd get past the corner. Well, that's the reality when you have obesity. As soon as you can lose 50 pounds, exercise becomes actually easier. So how do we think about these drugs, not as lifelong and not as sole treatments, but as part of a comprehensive program? And we could do that in medicine. Doctors could say, I'm happy to prescribe this medication for you, assuming it's going to be paid by the government at an affordable rate, let's mm -hmm. say $2,000 a year. But- to receive it, you have to participate in a program that involves lifestyle choices, involves education mm -hmm. around nutrition. How about if we find ways to ensure that we have fresh fruits and vegetables, farmers markets in every community, particularly mm -hmm. those that are food deserts. There's so many different things that we could do that would be under our control 
that's the opportunity that I'm trying to find. To me, medication and lifestyle medicine are not alternatives at each end. They're not contradictions. They're actually part of the tools that clinicians, and by that I don't mean just doctors, need to be able to help people address the obesity issues they have. I'm not going to get into the middle of the debate, whether it's a disease, not a debate, about all the issues around image. I'm well aware of the problems when people lose too much weight. But mm. as you say, what we have seen over the course of the past 30 years is a tripling of obesity and a tripling of diabetes. And you and I are both very knowledgeable in different ways. You see the impact on the heart. I've seen the impact on the extremities that happen with diabetes, with vascular disease that develops cardiac-wise and peripherally. Mm. Uh, we both know it, and it is a problem, and there's no denying it. I mm. think we need a solution, and today I don't see one, and I see medication opening the door to a more comprehensive set of approaches that I believe could actually maximize the health of people, not just reverse the high blood sugar and the added weight that the current food problems have contributed. I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. And the way that you just approached that, uh, that whole uh, question of how do we foster a preventative approach to health so that we're not stuck holding the bag at the end of the day, uh, I think will help another issue, uh, which we haven't mentioned. There's another billion dollar industry in this country, which is patients who are fed up with the Western medical approach to healthcare and are going to uh, gurus and self-help and uh, naturopaths. N naturopaths can do a wonderful job. There's, a, there's an added layer here where we have a lot of disaffected patients uh, because of the Western model. And the way that you framed it now, that we take a holistic approach to health, that, that it incorporates basic human needs, uh, healthy living, and undoing some of the unfair um, advantages that certain food companies have and creating highly processed foods. Um, I think that will bring back into the fold, into the conversation, uh, millions of patients who really um, are, are tired of the traditional Western approach, which is purely leaning on testing and medication. And I'm with you 100%. I wouldn't be a uh, a doctor a practicing for now for 25 years in the West, if I didn't believe in the power of medications, appropriate testing, et cetera. And I think we, we tend to default to an over-reliance of uh, that, of a medicalized approach. And I love your return a little bit to a broader, more holistic approach to lifestyle medicine and preventative medicine. Since you've raised the issue of the patient, let's turn to Jeremy and take his question and return to this topic at a future unfiltered episode. So you talked a lot about food and obesity on this episode. And one thing that I always see on social media is people, you know, showing pictures of beaches from the sixties, seventies, and you almost don't see any obese people, but you look around today in a large, uh, you know, large percentage of the population struggles with weight. Um, one of the things that I find particularly fascinating and also unnerving is that if you look at European countries or even other countries around Asia and the rest of the world, you see a lot of food additives and preservatives that are illegal in those countries, but are very, very common here. Um, 
what are your thoughts around that? And what are your thoughts about the government's responsibility around that? And again, due to the lobbying power of those companies that produce the foods, I mean, do you really see anything happening to do that? The, the way I would approach it, I think the, 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 the elephant in the room has to do with the highly processed foods, highly refined sugars in the Western diet and uh, major uh, food corporation industry, which has a powerful lobby, uh, and they're able to essentially corner the market. At the same time, it's very hard to have access to what we know is the healthiest diet, which is a mostly plant-based diet, a balanced diet that is extremely low, if not totally absent of uh, highly processed foods. Um, so, so we're fighting against now 50 years of Western uh, food industry and big companies, that's not something, that's not a fight that's, um, it's going to be won. It has to end up in some sort of a compromise. How do we uh, incentivize or hold accountable uh, bigger food companies for the health of the people that in a sense they're helping make sick? Um, not in a malicious way. I think there's a reason that people gravitate towards comfort foods. Uh, we've got tremendous stress in our world and many of us myself included, I go to the chocolate chip cookies and the potato chips, even though I know that they're not good for me. Um, so it's related to that. The answer that I would give to your question, Jeremy, is that we have to have some regulation of uh, food and what food products are on the shelves, how they're marketed to our children. Um, and I'd love to hear Robbie's thoughts on this. When I look at a complex question like excess weight and obesity, I try to start with what are the facts that we know, the undeniable facts that we know. And we know that weight has increased dramatically over the past 30, 40 years. As we said, it's doubled and tripled. As you point out, Jeremy, you look back to the pictures and you see a very different type of population. I read the report from the Pediatric Academy about how to think about obesity in kids. As we know, this is a growing uh, epidemic uh, with uh, people reaching high school already obese, something that almost never, ever happened in the past. And the Pediatric Academy grappled with the question of what is the etiology, what's the cause of obesity? And is it societal or is it genetic? And it came down very much on the genetic side. And I don't know that anyone knows whether it's right or wrong. But when I look at the data on the change across time, our genetics has not changed over 30 to 40 years. So I have to conclude that it's multifactorial. The, report, the recommendation made by the um, Pediatric Academy was very much a medicalized approach with uh, treatments, including things like the nude medications in, in kids and moving on to bariatric surgery and more complex procedures. But I'm struck by the fact that before we do that, we need, need to look at the societal pieces that are there. So when I, when I try to mesh all this together, I think we need a holistic solution. I don't think that it's actually healthy to fully medicalize the problem and commit people at the age of 12 or 14 or 16 to a lifelong 
treatment with medication to put them through surgery with, as we know, significant complications from some of the procedures that are going to be lifelong once the procedures are done. And at the same time, I don't think that we can just say it's willpower or say that it's just industry. I think we need to make all of these changes. I am actually hoping that it could get led in the same way that the smoking problems have been addressed, at least improved by making it highly uh, consistent around some of the interventions that exist. Jonathan, you made a great point before about the in impossibility of getting exercise or getting proper nutrition in some parts of the United States or associated with a job. We need to understand this, I think, is one of our nation's biggest priorities and the opportunity to address and reverse the weight gain across the United States, I think, would lead to lower costs, would lead to better health, and would lead to healthier lives for people. Uh, this is such an important topic. I think we need to return to it in a future episode. And um, hopefully we've stimulated our listeners thinking around it. And I'd be interested in hearing from them about what they believe we should be doing as a country. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want more information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit Robbie's website at robertperlmd.com and visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Unfiltered, with Dr. Robert Pearl, Jeremy Corr, and Jonathan Fisher. Have a great day.